Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And this week, we have an exciting conversation where we're going to discuss creatures and cryptids. Before we get into that, we're going to talk about a, not necessarily a cryptid, but when you cer- something you certainly don't want to come across in our What Happened on This Day. So I'll pass it off to Fel. Alrighty. So on the 21st of March, 1877, Louis Pasteur began work on a virulent anthrax bacteria in his laboratory at Lille, France. Spurred by a devastating outbreak, 1876, Two seventy-seven of anthrax, a disease fatal to cattle and sheep. Pasteur showed the disease was caused by this living organism, not by a toxin. By 1881, he prepared a vaccine made from a weakened strain of anthrax bacterium. He tested it on May 5th, 1881. Cows and sheep inoculated with the vaccine were immunized and survived, while an untreated control group died. R.I.P. Yeah, anthrax. Not fun stuff. Do not recommend. Let's just hop into it, actually. So I will fully admit I am not a big cryptid. I don't have a lot of knowledge surrounding the topic, but I think both of you are. So (laughs) who wants to start off with this? Henny created this beautiful outline, and then I just went in. I literally had a dream about what to add to the outline. And I added the things that came in my dream to the outline. So, <laughs> Just to clarify, for everybody who can't see the outline, the words Mothman, Biblical Angel, are written here. <laughs> that came to me in a dream. <laughs> I wrote, oh, God. <laughs> we're, we're becoming unhinged. Everybody. So I guess we can start with like the historical context. One of the things that I think comes immediately into a problem when you look at the history of cryptids and creatures well specifically cryptids is determining what is a mythological creature and what is a cryptid because i don't think they are the same thing looking at greek mythology cyclops right they're mythical figures and i'm sure people did but like i'm i'm pretty sure there were writings about seeing cyclopses but they were not necessarily like like they were known to be mythological and had stories tied to them. So I guess we can start there. Like how how are we defining cryptid versus other mythological beast versus elusive animal? I always tend to see that people define cryptids as a creature that is definitely real, but maybe just not very frequently seen. Maybe it's kind of somewhat folkloric, but there's a definite belief that the creature exists. Whereas a mythological creature is something which is sort of confined to fairy tales. And obviously there's a bit of a crossover there because like the depth of belief, but I think people who are into cryptids often take it a little bit more seriously. Right, right, right. Right, yeah, like people aren't necessarily, at least in modern cryptozoology, you know, people aren't really trying to prove the existence of griffins, for example. Those are pretty much accepted to be not real. What's interesting is a lot of our cryptozoology comes from early historians notably Pliny Pliny the Elder (laughs) this should shock no one Pliny was probably the most notorious but Herodotus also wrote a lot of our early stuff can can also trace back to Herodotus because Herodotus kind of like wrote down everything verbatim and also as what happened with Pliny happened with Herodotus where when he came across a certain group of people that he didn't understand sometimes that people group became cryptids or sometimes there are certain customs that they didn't understand like there's fun things to figure out what these things might be referencing the two ones that come to mind that like i'm obsessed with are skiopodes and blemmii 
Uh, Sciopodes are actually mentioned in um, Greek plays. Sciopodes are, they're also called monopods. So I know, Sciopodes are, are really weird and they're mentioned by a lot of people. So Sciopodes are small creatures with one foot and uh, they hop around and they use this big foot to sun them, like to hide themselves and protect themselves from the sun. So most of what we know about Sciopodes, like that bit comes from Pliny the Elder. Oh yes, Aristophanes play the birds. So where it first where it first appears. I'll share some pictures maybe on our Instagram of them. But some people later on have tried to figure out, you know, what what might have this been. Some people thought like maybe they just kind of came across in a one-legged individual. Some people actually think that Sciopodes are a reference to umbrellas found in India, the Hellenistic age when the Greeks came in contact more deeply with India. They saw umbrellas and thought that they were tiny men with feet. That's one theory of Sciopodes. The other cryptid that was like really big in the Middle Ages, and well, from like Pliny to the Middle Ages, would be the Blemii. I like to call them tummy-faced guys because they have their their faces are on their tummies. Some people, like one of the weirder ones that they think that Blemii might have been was some uh, tribe where they were the way that they like positioned themselves by like hiding or like sneaking around that Pliny thought that they were people with faces on their bellies. That's kind of like a random thing. But these in the Middle Ages called the monstrous races. And these monstrous races were often used to signify one of the seven deadly sins, for example. So blemii would be greed, insatiable hunger. Then there were other ones that had giant ears, but no mouths or something, or ones with giant noses. And so it was supposed to kind of represent various virtues and failings, at least in the Middle Ages. But they were also thought to sort of exist on the outskirts of the known world at that time in the Middle Ages. Interestingly, actually, we're talking about them being used in the Middle Ages as like possibly misrepresentations of certain people. I'm on Wikipedia now because, you know, great resource to get. <laughs> and I was looking at this. Did you call them skiopods? Skiopods. Skiopods. Or, okay. Yeah. And it mentions here that St. Augustine actually mentioned skiopods in the City of God, Book 16, Chapter 8 which was titled whether certain monstrous races of men are derived from the stock of Adam or Noah's sons. And he essentially concludes that it's not, it's uncertain whether or not these creatures exist. I think that's just really funny. Yeah. There were massive debates back then as if these creatures existed because they're technically like weird people. It's like if they would be proselytized to, that was a big concern. Like if we should preach the word of God to the tummy face guys and the big feet men. <laughs> And also the Blemii, an interesting point of note, Blemii is actually the name for people in Lower Nubia. So that, that was a name back then, but Blemii is also, uh, I call them tummy face guys. But back in the Middle Ages, it was actually like heavily debated as to whether they exist and if they existed, do we preach to them? And like, are they created by the devil? Or are they created by God? Very interesting stuff. So that's kind of like early cryptozoology. Mostly the fault of Pliny the Elder, though. <laughs> That's so interesting that there were like debates on whether or not to proselytize to to them. Of course, you know, I guess middle age Christianity, we just got to proselytize everybody. It doesn't matter whether you are real or not. Yeah, I think it can be confusing when you're reading Pliny as well, because if you read his natural history, there's a lot of stuff which actually kind of still holds up today because a lot of it was just pretty much natural history of the area. And so you can read things about like the woodpecker of Mars who will come and attack you if you go to a certain bush. 
And that sounds like a cryptozoology, but actually it's just referring to a certain type of woodpecker, which in, um, I think, Roman times was sacred to the god Mars. And it just means that a woodpecker tends to live in a certain bush. So it's it's weird trying to tease out the fact from the fiction in Pliny, because to him, he was. it seems like he was writing from his perspective, just all, all fact. He was really um, believing yourself, you can do it, including die at a volcanic eruption that had nothing to do with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you guys can think of any other historical examples of cryptozoology. This could even be because like, I think a lot of times, too, with cryptozoology, certain mythical creatures end up being proven to be real. I found a really ex- interesting example where um, it was suggested that fo- folkloric creature believed in by the Adnyamathana people, indigenous to South Australia. So they have the legend of the Yamuti, which is a really huge, terrifying mammal. And it has some stories associated with it, suggesting that it struggles to actually look up. So if you see a Yamuti, you're supposed to climb a tree because it can't look up at you. And so this was thought to be folklore for a really, really long time. Investigation of local fossils suggested that it actually probably did exist. And the beast was called a diprotodon. They didn't previously believe it existed because we didn't really understand as much as we do now about megafauna. But in kind of years gone by, it was much more common to have really, really large creatures, including large mammals, because the climate constraints and the ecological constraints allow larger creatures to develop. So it's just kind of interesting to see that some things that we assumed to be folkloric are actually real. Right. Well, there's like the the debate on Thunderbirds and if Thunderbirds were actually real like fauna. So Thunderbirds are are seen in a lot of northeastern indigenous tribes and seen a lot in like symbology. That's one of those things where I wouldn't necessarily call them cryptids, but they're definitely folkloric, like creatures that are very important in folklore and their existence has long been debated. But yeah, I mean, like if you're looking at Oceania, Ocean. I can never pronounce this. Uh, Oceania, Oceania, ocean place with Australia, New Zealand, and many other islands. In the island of New Zealand, the giant moa, which were thought to be, I think, the biggest birds to have ever lived, they only died out in the 1500s. They were like we found we found their fossils that like didn't date all that far back, and and also accounts of these stories coming out of them and like people finding their feathers. So yeah, giant moas scary. They're like 11 feet tall. And another thing I think that's interesting too is whales. I think a lot of a lot of like early sea monsters, people kind of realize like, oh, well maybe these are actually describing whales. Not always, but I think some of the descriptions do fit, you know, whales are pretty freaking scary. I mean, they're amazing. I love whales, but they are objectively terrifying if you see that on the sea. Despite the fact that they're very gentle creatures, they are terrifying. Like I went on, this is such a sidebar, but I went on like a whale cruise um, a while back for a specific family trip and like being close, I think we were around killer whales specifically, but like even just the killer whale, I mean, it was terrifying. I was just like, I don't want to be anywhere near you in the water. Orcas can take down blue whales. So. Yeah. Like it's crazy. And no, blue whales themselves are huge and it's also terrifying. Have you ever seen those pictures online where it's like comparing human to the size of a blue whale? And I'm just like, let's not do that. So what do you guys think then of creatures which are kind of more, I would say, accepted as folkloric? So like griffins or cockatrices. Do you think there's an explanation for those? Or do you think that they are purely just the vision of imagination? That's a really good question. I mean, it's like a lot of people, like when you're looking at dragons, for example, like we don't. Like dragons are, 
a lot of like the depictions of dragons they're not they're definitely not unanimous i wouldn't say that but like uh, there is through a, a lot of european folklore the depiction of creature that is massive and flies of some shape or breathes fire and it's like i mean we don't have any evidence for dragons existing we do have evidence for like dinosaur bones existing there could be something with that but i think a lot of it i mean it's just going back to like our folklore and superstition episode i think a lot of it just kind of happens through like stories that get intermixed or like there's like a lot of things in the bible that are translated as dragons which then the middle like the middle ages authors then like took that to mean certain kinds of dragons but like it might not have actually referred to what we think of as dragons there's a lot of times in ancient greek that people will translate things as dragons but it really just means like large serpent yeah so i think through a lot of like cultural mixing we get a lot we get certain things i don't know i think a lot of it is like storytelling myth and excitement and also like the environment that you're in i don't know I think you bring a really good point up about the translation because we know that even now we're going back and finding things that were, that were mistranslated back from the, even the original Hebrew text to the Latin found in like Alexandria. So I think that could definitely play a very big part. I think a lot of it too could also just be symbolism. For example, like the griffin with, I don't even remember what it's composed of, the head of a lion and the feet of an eagle or something. But like all of that, each part could be symbolic in some way and the entire animal is one of courageous and bravery and all, and, you know, so on so forth because i think some of the times a lot of those more seemingly mythological creatures that maybe aren't necessarily cryptids but they maybe stem more from symbolism rather than like any kind of actual you know basis in history or life in in the past it was interesting though hanny i think you brought up a point in the outline of about maybe cryptids influencing like certain types of magic and the depiction of different like Solomonic, like the Goetic demons. If anybody ever looks up pictures of the Goetic demons, you'll see that they they look like cryptids, quite frankly. Sometimes their forms are, they're a little wacky. And I think that's interesting to think about. We do have descriptions of the Goetic demons from different grimoires. So it's not entirely based, I think, in cryptozoology, but I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps that it was kind of elaborated on and maybe made to fit more of a cryptid framework, even just for human understanding, because the good experience, hard to describe. So yeah, definitely a possibility. I thought it was an interesting point you brought up that I wanted to wanted to mention. Yeah, it's interesting as well how both the goetic demons and other kinds of cryptids, especially for medieval times, are often basically described as just kind of synthesis of different animals. So you've got your cockatrice, for example, and what is that? Is that like the head of a chicken and the body of a dragon? I'm actually going to have to Google this because I've already. Forgotten. I mean, yeah, and they have like I have a medieval cookbook um, because of. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> of course, <laughs> if anybody had a medieval cookbook, I knew it would be. <laughs> um, and they have under what do they call them? They're like novelty dishes. They have making a cock and trees, which was actually like a really popular thing to do at big banquets there's so great youtuber or his name is max and he his channel is tasting history and he actually made a cock and trees and it was amazing because he's like this is impossible to make like i'll make this once and i'm never doing it again and he's like it only worked with modern cooking technology because you'd have to heat them at two different things he goes he was like it also involves sewing raw chicken which is not a pleasant experience but yeah, they had a lot. That was actually a really big thing back then was making novelty food being like this is like I think there's even like dragon hearts that were like eaten. And it was like just the way that you prepared the heart to make it look 
like how they would envision a dragon. So and that was like something like, oh, you know, the king is eating this. So I think that also has has a lot to do with it, like the the epics and the glory. Symbolic, like, yes, you know, I'm eating this dragon heart. Follow me. I mean also like specifically saints, right? Like Saint George and the Dragon. There's a lot of it's just with dragons specifically, it's like a lot of things with saints fighting dragons or just even saints finding weird creatures. Usually they're representations of like demons. There's something with that where that, that like crosses the line between symbolism and religion and people potentially believing in dragons. I actually don't know if the general populace in the Middle Ages believed in dragons. I I'm I'm not sure. I can kind of imagine as well, if you don't have much of a frame of reference for kind of creatures from other countries, right. um, if somebody comes back and they report something and they're kind of saying, oh, well, it had a head like a cat, but then it had a body that was like a wolf or, you know, they're trying to um, create a frame of reference, which is familiar to somebody who's never seen it before. I can imagine if I described a narwhal to you and you'd never seen a whale before, I could, I could have, oh, well, it's kind of like a fish, except it's got a horn like a unicorn. And just using those descriptions ends up creating something which is quite different from um, the original reference. But obviously, when you don't have anything but language and to pass it along, then you end up... Um, right. I mean, this continued even into the, like the Victorian age, like with unicorns. You know, like we first get reports of unicorns of like Marco Polo being like, oh, they have unicorns in China. And well, they do not. <laughs> Marco Polo spread a lot of weird nonsense but like you know even in like the victorian age with like the world the world's fair people would bring unicorns where they would like and they bring weird animals usually that were just kind of like a horse with a horn glued onto its forehead the victorian age was full of like doctored images um and like proving like fairies was like the fairy girls in the victorian age um with their photo so I think, I don't know, I, I think that's where we start getting into the realm of cryptozoology is once like photography enters the field. I don't know. Like proper cryptozoology. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely enhanced it for sure. Like it really put a focus on it because if you can capture it, then it's no longer theoretically still encrypted. But there's more evidence, right? All right, fella, I got to know. We got to talk about Mothman. Oh, we're going to talk about Mothman now. I feel like we should wait to talk about Mothman. Okay, you want to talk about Mothman later? Fine. Yeah. <laughs> i'm just gonna keep like sprinkling in like my mothman theories and not let people know until the end that's your treat for listening is my unhinged mothman theories oh my goodness yeah another fascinating thing that happens is there are like in you either get two things happening where there's different cultures same creature or like same name of creature but different cultures and the two notable examples that i can think of is chupacabras chupacabras have like the same name but depending on where you are the chupacabra ranges from basically being like a naked coyote to being like a bipedal werewolf figure and it it really depends on where you are that depends on, on you know that that folklore and that specific depiction Another interesting one is how many different versions of Bigfoot there are in Appalachia. <laughs> Bigfoot has been spotted technically, I think, like all over the U.S., but the most like specific areas are like the Appalachian Mountains. Where I'm from in Pennsylvania, there's a specific Bigfoot called the Albatwitch, which is probably a PA Dutch word. But Albatwitches are three foot tall, hairy men, and they steal apple pies off of people's windows. <laughs> 
Oh, and then they pick and then they pick apples and they throw them at you. But they are considered to be like people who are Bigfoot hunters consider them to be of the same species, I guess. Just different like uh, so like you know, or not species, I guess. I'm I'm not a zoologist. Like so cats and tigers are like the same genus. Gen- thank you. Yeah. The same genus, but different like species, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. So Bigfoot propagated with like <laughs> A gnome or a troll <laughs> created these little men. <laughs> yeah, elbow twitches. <laughs> I love it. Wait, hang on. Three, three foot. Is that is that a lot? I, I think I got confused because you said three feet, and I thought about three meters because I'm like one point six meters. But that's three feet is not very not very big. No, three no. feet. Because like an average person here is like five foot, give or take. Oh, so they're like little baby. Yeah. Oh, how cute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. so that's why you can't leave your apple pies outside or the apple twitches or steal them. They really like apple pies. Did you ever test it? Um, no. Um, <laughs> no fun stories. Oh, I'm looking at a picture of them. That's so funny. It's kind of interesting that you get like the same creature in different areas. Do you think that's just the propagation of stories or do you think that there's like a common seed which is creating those stories? I mean, I think it definitely depends on the cryptid. I think when it comes to Bigfoot, a lot of it is word of mouth and how, because I mean, if you look at Appalachia, Appalachia is made up of pretty much like Irish, German, Italian, Scottish immigrants, and they all interacted with each other. So all of these different folklores are getting mixed together as well as getting mixed together with indigenous traditions of those same areas. So I think a lot of it too is just, you know, like Northern Appalachia, uh, while still similar to southern appalachia is is still has like regional differences so i think it's kind of like how those regional differences travel yeah i was gonna say it's probably very much so like um kind of a tailoring of a particular cryptid to a specific region place or even just tradition in general to make it more specific and i guess realistic to that particular area people have tried to prove the existence of cryptids i think even like one can even argue that plenty not really herodotus because he was just kind of saying what he saw or what he heard where they kind of like tried to prove their existence or even Marco Polo right like trying to find these creatures but I don't think you get actual cryptozoology until the advent of photography which is in our favorite age the Victorian age people often think that like doctoring photos as being like a, a, a new phenomena but uh, there's a wonderful video by Bernadette Banner where she basically she cancels Victorian influencers for altering their bodies in photos, altering their faces in photos as well. I think one of the things that like happened a lot was with cryptozoology. And I'm thinking specifically of the fairy girls. Let me remember, see if I can remember what their name is. Cottingly fairies. Yeah. Okay, yeah. My understanding of the story was that they were like two girls who took these supposed photos of fairies but it, it was just them right so I'm pretty sure it was just them they didn't doesn't get proven until many years later but I think it's interesting that early cryptozoology starts happening in the Victorian age with the advent of photography which we also see kind of happening at the same time as spiritualism so I think it's interesting that a lot of these kind of weird fringe things kind of have a lot of similar ancestors <laughs> you know it's, like spiritualism it's, it's and like a fascination with the paranormal and the spiritual because even the spiritualists right like 
while they weren't necessarily trying to capture fairies and pictures, they were certainly trying to capture things like ghosts or, you know, ancestors visiting, like, people around a table, like, Mesmer, and I mean, all of that became really popular at the time. And so it's no wonder, really, that it kind of fed into each other, and we see this intermingling, even in, in the Victorian age, with, you know, paranormal and spirituality, like, certain forms of spiritualism and, and new thought. Before photography, people were actually sketching out things. This, this, this picture's from 1749, and it's basically where somebody said that they saw a sea monster in Orford Ness, and so they um, actually drew it out and put it in the newspaper. Yeah, I think I think there are a couple of examples like that with specifically, I think the Loch Ness monster too, of drawings before there was photography. So I think it, it, I think a lot of it depends on you know which cryptid you're talking about. Like I don't think Loch Ness monster and Mothman are the same type of cryptid because like Loch Ness monster seems very much more tied to folklore. Whereas Mothman is now tied to folklore, but not was not really like tied to any sort of traditions of that area at that time. Like Bigfoot is kind of the idea of the wild man is a very common idea. Let's go back to your initial question, right? The safety of is is cryptozoology like its own thing or is it part of the paranormal? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of scientific assertions which are used to shore up cryptozoology which are unfortunately a bit invalid so if you think about how many undiscovered creatures there are currently we have like 1.64 named species 1.64 million named species but statistical models suggest at the rate we're discovering them there are probably as many as 8.7 million so a lot of people assume that oh because we have so many undiscovered species that must mean that there's you know some kind of plausible thing behind these rare cryptid species existing but then when we actually look at the biomass which exists in the world and we look at how all those species are broken down of those 1.64 million well firstly animals are such a minority of biomass on earth it's really it's really crazy but secondly most of the biomass is actually taken up by like arthropods and nematode worms and things like that and so statistically speaking you're much more likely to find a beetle cryptid than you are something large like bigfoot often i think you find that a lot of the assertions are built like sightings it's very very sighting heavy photograph heavy and you don't have other ecological techniques used as much so like looking for scats looking for footprints so in that sense it kind of leans into more of the paranormal because you're not really using actual science does that make sense yeah that makes sense where they kind of i mean you see this happen too with spiritualists where they kind of use scientific facts to be unfactual (laughs) to try to prove their point i think cryptozoology is maybe you could consider it kind of its own field of things but i think it fits under the paranormal like umbrella um where you know many things fit under that even if it's its own kind of like subfield generally i think it fits under the the umbrella term of paranormal just because it's not something that's normal (laughs) i mean they both they both air on the travel channel (laughs) (laughs) yeah true yeah but it's just it's it's something abnormal something that we don't really have evidence for and the evidence that we do have is questionable at best at least in my opinion and so because of that it does kind of toe that line of being possibly real if you stretch the science but also more folkloric or mythological which slides it more into the paranormal category kind of I think a lot of cryptozoologists, they do one of two things. They either have their own absolutely 
bonkers way of like contacting this creature or they'll use like sonar like they'll use like actual other attempt to use actual scientific tools but they do it so incorrectly that it never comes up with what they want yeah so i find that very interesting like that they don't really have like there's no like weird emf readers like they don't have their own like cryptozoology toolbox for the most part there was a story i was listening to someone was telling a story this was a person i think they were giving like a a little i don't know what the word is story slam in appalachia talking about bigfoot because that's just what happens in appalachia you talk about bigfoot and she was saying how she went on a hike with like a bigfoot guy who like he his whole thing was like all these people they just like believed that this guy was gonna like help them find bigfoot and he believed it too i guess every so often they'd go into the woods where there had been a bigfoot sighting and he would just like make a call and like they had just decided that this was bigfoot's call and every time he'd make the call pause hear nothing and then go huh and the, the way that she said it she was like the confidence with which he said huh as if he was absolutely sure he was gonna get a response there, there's like an overlap of people who are into cryptozoology and into the paranormal but there's also like some stark differences like people who are like chubacabra hunters a lot of them are just like your average farm rancher out in southern california like they're, they're not necessarily sort of yeah so i think there's like two types ones that are like i 100 percent believe in these guys you got to hunt them and then there's the other who are like more nerdy and are like trying to prove their existence so i think that's also interesting what do you think the explanation for bigfoot is we see picture evidence evidence quote unquote um of bigfoot from the appalachian mountains and people try and use that to prove the existence but then it's disproven by skeptics obviously who are like oh no it's just you know this or this so do you have a theory? I will say the like OG film of Bigfoot, the Patterson-Gimlin film, is the only footage of Bigfoot to have n- not been fully debunked. The OG, that OG film, it has not really ha- had any successful full debunking. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I'm going to be honest. I, I don't like, I don't want 100% believe in Bigfoot. But I also, I, I don't fully disbelieve that there could be such a thing as Bigfoot. I don't think Bigfoot's going to sit down and have tea with you. Like, I don't believe, like, some people have really weird conspiracy theories about Bigfoot. But I, I don't know. I, I think the wild man archetype is a very common one. It makes sense. You know, it could have started as, like, literally there was just a wild man just, like, out in the woods. And he was just, like, a lumberjack doing his thing. Because there's also the Yeti as well, right? Like, it's not the only legend of a similar kind of creature existing. So I can see that it be it being, like, a common archetype, like you described, the wild man archetype. Right. One common explanation that I've, I've heard, I don't know how plausible this is, is that it could just be, like, a bear with mange. So basically when bears, they have mange, they lose all their hair and they become more, I guess, more human-looking in that sense. Like, they're not completely bald, but they, so they have some fur. And I think that's quite a plausible plausible explanation i wondered if you thought that there was any kind of spiritual crossover so you th- do you think people are having like spiritual experiences when they're um having these encounters or are they simply just deluded slash seeing something with a wrong explanation i think that's one of the amazing things about bigfoot versus other cryptids is that there are people who have spiritual experiences with bigfoot there's also this trans-dimensional bigfoot idea <laughs> that would get real freaky where people think like bigfoot is some sort of trans-dimensional being people who are hunting bigfoot they're they're not 
hunting Bigfoot like they're hunting chupacabras, where chupacabras are seen as a threat to cattle. People who are hunting Bigfoot, they just like love Bigfoot and they want to find him. They just really love Bigfoot. <laughs> so I think there is it's almost a component to Bigfoot, which will lead me finally to Mothman, since I know I've been kind of playing everybody about Mothman. So for those of you who don't know, let me get my dates right here. Mothman was first described in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, November 15th, 1966. And he's seen as like this big, big, dark, shadowy creature with big wings and red eyes. There's actually in Point Pleasant, they have a statue to Mothman there. It was so funny. In this one documentary I was seeing, it was like 50% of people in Point Pleasant believe that Mothman was there as an omen against danger, and 50% believe that he brought the danger. I'm so like, so what you're telling me is 100% of people believe in Mothman. <laughs> Mothman really got his fame because during the, uh, there was this bridge called the Silver Bridge that ran between Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and Galliopolis, Ohio. In the 1960s, I think, oh, sorry, 1967. So this all, all of Mothman's lore took place in the span of two years and like stopped pretty much. There's like not really been any Mothman sightings since. I think there might have been one in the 90s, but that one was like not as widely confirmed as the ones that happened between 1965 and 1967. So this bridge collapse was considered, I think, one of the worst bridge collapses in U.S. history at that time. There was like a lot of reports of people seeing this creature, Mothman, flying back and forth over the bridge. And before this, there, Mothman was seen as kind of like either chasing cars, so going as fast as a car. And so people kind of began to see Mothman as this kind of omen of tragedy, because wherever he appeared, there appeared to be tragedy. Now, <laughs> one of my housemates actually got, got me into this theory of Mothman as a biblical angel because big freaky scary thing with wings my housemate is of the belief and i'm also i guess of the belief i don't really know if i actually believe in mothman i think it's fascinating like i said some people believe that mothman was trying to warn people of this danger which is very much how angels are seen as guiding spirits and west virginia extremely religious like extremely religious part of appalachia appalachia has like a lot of folklore around angels and demons and like a, a very vibrant like spiritual community so a lot of people see mothman as being this i i honestly think i don't think i believe in mothman as a cryptid as a creature that exists but rather if mothman did exist it was like a set of collective spiritual experience so mothman biblical angel i rest my case something like like akin to like the angel of death this, right like, right right that's interesting that you mentioned that because yeah, West Virginia is super like religious. I have friends over there and they can get kind of crazy. So it wouldn't surprise me that it was something that maybe was seen during a time of like intense turmoil. People thought of it as some kind of sign. That's where that's a very interesting conspiracy theory. I like it. <laughs> yeah, weirdly, I feel like I'm more likely to buy into a collective spiritual experience than I am to like an actual cryptid and where people are suggesting like, yes, you can take photographs of it and the you know, there's an ecology living here and it becomes so much more implausible when you put all these assumptions about the local environment in. Whereas if right. you say it's a spiritual experience, like you say, it just makes more sense to me. Mothman to me, like I don't really consider Mothman a cryptid per se, but I consider Mothman a collective spiritual experience because <laughs> it does make sense given, you know, what one knows about how West Virginia 
kind of views angels and demons and spirits in that regard. Bigfoot, on the other hand, I don't think Bigfoot's a collective spiritual experience. Apparently to some people it might be. Yeah. Listen, go out, go to go to Appalachia, leave an apple pie outside and see what happens. Being the skeptic that I am, I definitely think Bigfoot is more of like a, a trick of the mind in the dark at night that people see and make it this huge thing. I don't really think there's any substance to the, you know, it being a cryptid or something even possibly real, but that's just me. <laughs> what are some other cryptids, some modern cryptids that you would know about? Well, in my dream, I, I dreamt that I asked Henny to, I don't know, <laughs> this episode's really off the rails for me, <laughs> dreaming about what to say. Um, I dreamt that I asked Henny to please make sure we shared things that were not just America-centric. So now is my time to ask Henny, who had compiled a little bit of a list of certain cryptids. It's kind of interesting because I feel like the folklore of the UK and the cryptozoology of the US are actually quite separate things. And so we don't necessarily have as much like cryptid culture over here in terms of believing in actual living physical creatures. That said, there are a few ones. So there's lots of sightings of big cats of various descriptions. And so there's a running theory about this where these big cats, rather than being kind of large panthers or whatever, they're escaped Victorian pets, which have somehow bred in the wild. <laughs> Um, and the climate down south is, in theory, mild enough to sustain a population of wild cats. But the evidence is kind of slim because obviously we're missing crucial evidence like scat and prints and things. It's really funny. Somebody called the police a few years ago about one of these sightings and um, they found out that it was actually just a very big cat, like a, like a, like a house cat. Other ones How disappointing. Are... Yeah, I know. Yeah, some other, other local ones which you might have heard of. Um, black Shuck. Have you heard of Black Shuck before? So basically a big hellhound, um, if you've seen Harry Potter and you know what, what um, Sirius oh, yes. Black turns into, same kind of deal. So the explanation for this is potentially we did used to have wolves in the UK many, 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 many years ago. So it's thought, okay, maybe it was a vestige of those times. The range of sightings would be incorrect, so maybe not. But this is often, again, seen as a kind of harbinger of doom, often associated with graveyards and death. Um, bad omens. And there are also some variations where it's equated to the devil in terms of sabbatic witchcraft. Um, so somebody would travel to the Sabbath and they would see Black Shuck instead of the devil. Another one would be where St. Felix was buried. Apparently there was a monk-headed dog or dog-headed monk. And basically that some kind of Black Shuck-St. Felix fusion was haunting the, um, the local area, of course. Finally, I think my favourite one is one that's just called The Hateful Thing from 1891. Not really described in any sense, um, but it was written, there's an uncomfortable form of ghostly terror in beast form that haunts the villages on the borders of the two counties, which is commonly called the hateful thing. I allude to the churchyard of the hell beast. Whenever it is met in any locality, it is a sign that some great and unusually horrible wickedness is about to be committed, or has just taken place there. So there's just no explanation of what this is, what it looks like, what it sounds like. It's just some kind of horrible beast but i quite like that because i feel like it's um it could refer to literally any cryptid <laughs> so like looking at the list of cryptids online you know various lists of cryptids online it seems like a lot of the ones that are not in the u.s are water-based which makes sense like a, a lot it seems like most of the cryptids like in the uk seem to be like lake monsters <laughs> even in russia too there seems to be a lot of lake monsters a lot of river monsters which I think makes sense 
given I don't know what one knows about I, I feel like there's a lot of like superstition around water uh, just folklorically and also culturally so it makes sense that a lot of the cryptids that we see are aquatic not even that honestly I just think that like water in general there's such a mystery of like the ocean especially the deep ocean and right. so people have this kind of seated idea that like there's so many things that we just don't know and so who are we to say that it's not possible there's some like huge sea monster sitting at the bottom of the ocean practically ready to like swallow a country or something from what it seems like a lot of cryptids lake monsters and also the apes or wild men archetype which makes sense given like you know sometimes people do just run away into the woods grow a lot of hair (laughs) and terrify people that makes sense or, or people oftentimes see like people I get like we are that's why a lot of times when we depict aliens it's literally just a human <laughs> um, with like a funny looking antenna or something so I think it makes sense too that a lot of the other cryptids the mysterious creatures we see would be human-like because it's kind of us seeing ourselves in the wild yeah the um the sea monster thing makes tons and tons of sense in terms of it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder to get photographs. And also, I've heard the argument as well that um, the sea is so, like, large um, that there could be anything hiding down there, you know? Like, it's it's more plausible that there is um, some kind of hidden creature. I thought it was a an amusing kind of segue that some one of my colleagues actually found a mysterious creature washed up on the beach. And obviously, back in ye olden days, you might, you might have thought, oh, you know, what's this horrible creature that we've discovered? It's a folklore. But because they are by petitions, they decided to take a sample of it and they sequenced it. And this horrible decomposing creature was actually just a harbor porpoise that had been eaten in a particular way, which made it like a sea monster. So I think if uh, we do want to do cryptozoology, sequencing is the future for finding out what these things are. Okay, so one explanation that we potentially have for at least historical creatures like sea monsters or dragons is the fact that dinosaur skeletons obviously have been found in modern times and presumably also in Mumbai. So um, it's possible that people saw these skeletons and asserted that they were part of some um, large creature like a a dragon rather than a dinosaur. But how do we know that (laughs) if we find a dinosaur skeleton that it is in fact from a dinosaur and it is from you know hundreds of thousands of years ago rather than something else? So one of the ways we can do that is through carbon dating and Carbon dating is a technique that was developed by Willard Libby in the 1940s, I believe it was. Essentially, it's a way of using different carbon isotopes to look at radioactive decay over time, which then by comparing it, we can confirm, well, stop confirm the time period in which something was living. So basically, I won't get into the full scope of detail surrounding carbon dating, but within our atmosphere, there are three different carbon isotopes, carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. Carbon-12 is the most abundant within the atmosphere at like 99%. Carbon-13 is the second most at 1%. And then carbon-14 is actually a carbon isotope that stems from nitrogen interacting with particles from the sun that basically knocks a proton off of of nitrogen and turns it into carbon-14, the isotope. So basically, because Carbon-14, along with all the other carbon isotopes, exist in the atmosphere. When we breathe them in or when they're taken up by plants during photosynthesis, we then eat the plants or we eat animals. That carbon-14 makes it into our own bodies and the bodies of anything living on Earth. Carbon-14, compared to carbon-12 and carbon-13, is the most unstable 
of the three isotopes. And so over time, it decays. It's radioactive. So it, it experiences radioactive decay. Because of that, carbon-14 has a half-life, as do most radioactive isotopes. And so basically, what carbon-14 dating is, is it's measuring the radioactive decay of this particular isotope. So I think carbon-14 specifically has a half-life of 5,730 years, very specific number. And so by looking at the amount of radioactive decay compared to carbon-12, which doesn't decay over time because of how stable it is, we can get an idea of how much time has passed from the, the radioactive decay of carbon-14. And basically, like, if you double that, those number of years, so I think it'd be, what, like 11,000-something, then you'd only have a quarter of the original carbon-14 left, and so on, and it decreases, so on and so forth. Of course, carbon-14 dating has its limitations, as does every method. We can only go back so far until we can't measure the carbon-14 anymore, and then it's kind of just like a toss-up. Well, okay, we know it's before this time period, but we can get kind of a general idea, but that's where it stops. Yeah, that's like the big drawback. The other thing that carbon-14 dating doesn't take, it makes like two really big assumptions. One, it's that the ratio of carbon-12 and carbon-14 in the atmosphere is generally the same. That's less of an assumption now because we know that it is pretty constant and like science has shown that over the course of many years. But the other thing to make note is that this assumption that carbon-14 and carbon-12 have like the amount of it in the atmosphere has remained the same across time. And that is not true, especially because when the, with the addition of like nuclear things being brought on board and then also just increased fossil fuel usage and so on and so forth, that really skews our amounts of carbon in the air that we can use for carbon dating, which is actually why carbon dating typically kind of the starting point is like 1950. And then we could trace back from there before a lot of these other things began to impact our ability to measure it and distinguish the radioactive decay. But yeah, that's the breakdown of generally how that works. Yeah, so you can you can only use those for certain things that are sort of semi-young, like within the kind of hundreds of thousands of years range. Like you couldn't use those for like really old dinosaur bones, which were millions of years old. You have to use different kinds yeah. of chemical analysis. So you could carbon date a cryptid, but maybe you couldn't carbon date a T-Rex. Useful takeaway for any aspiring, uh, aspiring archaeologist this episode. I also think it's interesting to side note on dinosaur bones is some people think that that's where at least for the ancient Greeks, where certain, we actually think that some of their hero shrines were built around dinosaur bones. That is, that is super, super sick, actually. Do you know which heroes? I don't know which heroes. That's just like one of the theories that people have about like how certain hero cults develop, considering there's like there was like a transition of time between people like believing that heroes were literally larger than life. Yeah. Do we want to do talk about our little quiz that we did? You want to introduce it? <laughs> sure. We had a crazy message earlier today in our group chat. Well, that was it's from Henny, actually. <laughs> Before I had It Came to Me in a Dream, Henny was sending us quizzes or a quiz <laughs> on which cryptid you were. And we'll we'll send it to the Discord too. And I guess maybe we'll link it in the episode. Who wants to go first? Well, Henny's the one who sent it. So. Yeah. Okay, Henny, you have to go first. I got Bigfoot. I'm not sure how I feel about that, obviously, because the stereotype is like hairy, smelly, <laughs> um, I guess lives in the woods is quite is spiritually quite significant. People just, <laughs> people just love you. People will dedicate their lives. You. you love to forage. You have the beautiful red hair that we're all envious of. <laughs> Imagine a good ginger Bigfoot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't be too unhappy with that, I guess. Living living out, outside in the woods is uh, pretty good for me. What did you guys get? I got the Fresno Nightcrawler, which is basically just a sentient pair of pants. 
Um, can you explain what this is? Because I've actually never heard of this one. Okay, so the Fresno Nightcrawler uh, is from Fresno, California. And it's it's also one of the ones that's like may or may not be an alien. So it's like more alien than it is cryptid. It's only had like two appearances. There's some like original footage. It's the footage is hilarious. It literally looks like a weird sentient pair of pants. Basically, it was just like this very bipe. I don't know why I'm making things with my hands as if anyone can see me besides the hosts. Basically, it was like this bipedal creature that was seen in some like park area, I think. Yeah, like national park by security cameras. Yeah, it just kind of walked around. That, that's its big claim to fame, that it's a sentient pair of pants. This is actually very scary. I'm looking at images right now. Are you, are you happy about this development in your life? Um, <laughs> my development in my life. The first one, Nightcrawler, is the silliest cryptid to me. So, I mean, I'm not happy that I, my, that I may or may not be an alien. I'd rather be something like, like, I want to be an Alba Twitch, but no one knows about Alba Twitches unless you're from Appalachia. Or like, from specifically Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, well, you're spreading the word for the podcast. Spreading so. the good word yeah, they're pretty freaky. I don't know. They they don't they're not interesting to me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They're not interesting to me. They're just like weird either stunt people or stupid aliens. Apple at you. Wow, Henny. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh Henny just wrote in the like little chat Apple at you. Apple at cha. So that's why they threw apples at you. Yeah. I got Mothman, which like Wow. I know, right? But like, how fitting is it? We compared Mothman to angels, and I'm over here as a ceremonial magician. Yeah. (laughs) Working with angels by practice. Hilarious. Maybe you'll be the first person to see Mothman again. Listen, like 40 if, years. if Mothman decides to do me a favor and appear while I'm over here in Virginia, I will let y'all know. Yeah. Maybe I'll do an invocation in the forest. Do it. Do it. I would genuinely love to hear how that goes. I'll take you out with me. We can it can be a like big podcast host vacation and we can all do an invocation of Mothman in the forest of West Virginia. And we'll report back Please. on our findings. Please. All right. We'll cover there. We at all we are at our hour <laughs> our hour time. <laughs> um thank you so much for listening this was a really fun and informative episode to record and i loved hearing more about cryptids it's not really my area but if you aren't already follow us on instagram where we post hints of upcoming episodes and handy does a fabulous job with the stories making them fun and interactive and then we also have a discord where we do lots of things include send you quizzes and make funny tags related to our episodes because we are just those kind of people so if you haven't already joined you can do so using the link in the episode description below um we also have a like science journal club and a cult journal club where we talk about different topics and we have very enlightening discussions with some very intelligent people so always tons of fun to hang on the discord we also have the best memes so if you need no other excuse to come join that would be the one reason that's everything and let let us know your let us know um your favorite yes. cryptids. Let us know your favorite cryptids and also let us know more importantly if you have ever had any experience with cryptids. I, I would love to know. Yeah. I really would love I, to Yeah, know. I would too. Please yeah. share them. Yeah, that'd be so much fun if you had an experience. And if you have if you have photographic evidence, obviously you are required <laughs> to share that as well. <laughs> yes. All right, we'll call it a day and we'll see you next week. Bye everybody. Bye.